0: big sky, big potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. I'm Mike Rigby, and thank you for joining me as we share the full potential of the East of England all around the world. This, my friends, is the Eastern Promise podcast. Science is the East of England's stock in trade. Cambridge, our global capital of life sciences. And Norwich, the home of plant science. These twin worlds collide at the Quadram Institute and I'll be chatting to the Institute's Director, Professor Ian Charles, OBE, and join Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Science and Healthcare Partnership Lead for the University of Cambridge on a fact-finding tour of the QI. And finally, where's your coffee office, your latte lounge, your mocha meeting place? Let Eastern Promise be your barista for another caffeine-powered serving of crowd sorcery. The Quadrum Institute on the Norwich Research Park is at the forefront of a new frontier in science where health, food and innovation all meet. It's a healthcare facility and a clinical research institute into both food and gut health that's solving some of the greatest mysteries posed by the link between what we eat and our physical and mental health. Co-location with the John Innes Centre, the Sainsbury Laboratory and Earlham Institute further facilitates the Quadram Institute's research and the nearby Food Enterprise Park and Food Innovation Cluster make for an exciting ecosystem in the making. Of course, I wanted to know more, and I wasn't the only one. I invited Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Science and Healthcare Partnership Lead for the University of Cambridge, to come and see the QI, and you'll be joining Tammy and the Quadrum Institute's Head of Public Affairs, Andrew Stronach, on her fact-finding tour of the QI very shortly. First, we sat down for a chat with the Director of the Quadrum Institute, Professor Ian Charles, OBE. Professor Ian Charles, OBE, for which many congratulations, by the way. Thank you for welcoming myself, Mike Rigby of Eastern Promise, and...
1: Tammy Dugan from Cambridge University
0: to the Quadrum Institute on a very sunny Wednesday morning uh, with beautiful weather. Could you give us a very potted history of Professor Ian Charles, please?
2: Oh, there is a potted history, but as you can see, physically, you can see uh, I'm a scientist of a certain age, so I have been around <laughs> and um, I started life in, in, um, in science, really. Well, my, my real interest in science started before um, I did a science degree which was at St. Andrew's University, I was always interested and drawn to science. And so it it makes a lot of sense to me that I ended up as a scientist, although perhaps not to other people around me at the time. My first love was tinkering with electronics. And I remember being captivated as a young man by... by what was the the emerging field of home electronics in terms of what you could do with transistors and I you know working out my own little soldering iron and moving on to actually uh, etching my own little circuit boards that i could plug my transistors into this is all very good of course because i had a, i had a mathematical bent as well so i was drawn towards that maths physics side but then um strange vault face i I remember reading something in in probably the mid 1970s about genetic engineering which was just starting um the Cohen boyer patents had been filed around 1972 and there was this great idea that uh, you could take dna from one organism and plug and play it in Another. This was this was the start of cloning, the discovery of restriction enzymes, and this this moment I remember. It strikes you, uh, if you know about biology, that um, the very same genes in bacteria, these lowly organisms, work in the same way that they do to an extent in human beings. Isn't that amazing? So there's this continuity of life that actually extends right across. The planet so and i I was amazed by this so i wanted to go into life sciences so i ended up doing a degree at st andrews it was biochemistry zoology um background um and then on to do a phd and then on to various postdocs but i'm unusual in the sense that i've worked in industry um as well as in academia. So I've had various roles at Welcome, Glaxo, Wellcome, which pharmaceutical companies, um, in, in academic, in, as a professor in teaching roles, um, and a professor in institutes. Yeah. But also in, in the context of how we make a societal impact. So I've worked on projects involving yeah. whooping cough vaccine, um, other vaccines. And I've also worked on spin-out companies. So I've been very successful spinning out ideas, patterns I've filed that have spun out into companies mm. that have actually contributed to um, success in terms of deliverables. Yeah. So I, I've, I've led a charm life, but mostly it's to do with great people around me. So I, you can't emphasise enough about how this is really about teams and about building teams and working together in a collaborative way to deliver on expectations uh, that society expects now from investment. Definitely.
0: For those listening to this who might not know of the Quadrum Institute, could you very quickly give us a quick overview of of what it is you do here?
2: So uh, Quadrum uh, is, is unique. I think in terms of its um, it, of what the expectations are on quadrum, and I'll, I'll tell you more about the name first before we we get into some of the detail. Because quadrum, what does that mean? You know, but I'll tell you the quadrum actually stands for the four partners. So quad, four, the four partners, and the four partners are, BBSRC, which is one of the an element of UKRI, our our core funder, um, the. Quadrum Institute Bioscience is the old Institute of Food Research that was here before, uh, and the majority, and you might know that. I I do remember. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's an important part of that food science. And then, of course, the hospital, NNUH, and the university, UEA. Thus, the four partners, thus, Quadrum. Right. You've no idea what fun we had uh, getting that name in the very early stages, when when the four partners were together, it involved locking us all together in a room for two days and coming up with ideas. Uh, and then we settled on Quadrum. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a camel of a name, you know, it's not really, but actually it does signify the four partners and it does signify um, that partnership. And I, I like that and I like it still today um, so there's Quadrum, there's the four partners, but you can see uh, from that the beginnings of this idea in, in the ground floor as you came in, the, the lower basement floor. It's one of the largest endoscopy units in Europe with a capacity to do 40,000 uh, endoscopies a year. Now, endoscopies have, have really had a huge impact in the way gut health is perceived because you can pick up early something that might be a a tiny little adenocarcinoma or a tiny little, um, any form of cancer, and you can snip it out quite early. So if you get in early, these checks, intervention, are very useful and it gives you a great insight. But it also means for us, in terms of a research um, organization, we're working with partnership with the hospital, with endoscopy, and that means that we get access to um, all the ethics are done, everything's you know, a seamless way of delivering on um, biological samples. So we get this connection with patients immediately that allows us to help and improve what's going on in the gut by looking closely at human tissue itself. I think that's a fantastic opportunity for us. So, so that leads us on to the connections with the university, of course, because they have a school of medicine. It's the medics that work closely with the scientists. It's all the training, or all the interactions. We also have a biorepository, of course, yeah. oh, where sorry. everything is done in terms of the, you know, the, all the legal requirements, the ethical requirements. So everything is done, so that, that can be a seamless transition between uh, clinical. Uh, clinical scientists, um, clinicians with scientific interests who want to work in certain areas, are scientists who are looking at that gut health element, and um, bringing that all together in context to deliver those biological samples. We also have a clinical trials unit where we can look at how we can test the impact of what we're doing yeah. on clinical populations. So you'll get to see this when you have a little tour around, and it's. Beautiful modern facilities. Now, uh, we have you know clear mission vision statements looking at the impact of food on health through the microbiome. Now, again, if I if I was a young scientist today, this is an area that I would find hugely. Hugely fascinating. Imagine all these microorganisms living in us and around us. They're cooking up a storm of metabolites. They're doing all the cell signalling. They're doing all the bits of interaction with our human gut. And stuff is happening there that is impacting our health. We need to understand exactly what is happening there. We've we've talked about FMT in the context of this uh, and, and the delivery faecal microbiota transplant, FMT, just for the avoidance of doubt. Yes. Um, And so, yeah, Yeah. we, we uh, uh, and that's part of what we we are doing and we would like to do. But it's only a tiny part of what we can and are doing here.
1: Okay, so the first thing I noticed when I came in here, I felt like I was walking into a patient area very much... um, It almost, you know, in, in a hospital and yeah. in a very nice hospital. We'll go downstairs and start from the bottom up. And then yeah. you walk up the stairs and yeah. you're in a lab area. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to just see a bit more how how this division, you know, is there a division? Does it interact? How does it interact? So we yeah. go from the bottom and then. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, it's be, something you normally see quite separate really isn't it? The, uh, yeah, and I think the, that, the patient face in front the unique with the lab element of it. and it's the first thing that I noticed when I walked in. Yeah it's, um, and I
3: think speaking to our scientists um, particularly the scientists who are based at the old IFR which was a yep. sort of 1960s laboratory building you didn't see the public but this is a public building so you exactly are reminded the, every the single that day that yep. the science you're doing use it for? Yeah. It's for the general public and our patients? So I think it's a really, really nice um, element of what the four partners came up with. The whole, the whole philosophy was, well, let's bring these elements together because that's how science works best. And I think it's really quite powerful.
1: I mean, it's very rare, you know, very rare for patients wandering around into the healthcare setting to actually see labs. It's just close, there. just there, yeah. Yeah. isn't
3: it? We'll start here, really. Um, the architects wanted to build a building that's like a cell, like an organism. It's got two sides. And within that organism, there's different elements um, from the different partners. So there's ourselves, Quadram Institute of Bioscience, Africa Norwich University Hospital, yeah. University of East Anglia, who have researchers who are yep. embedded here, they work here permanently. Okay, I
1: was going to ask about yeah. that.
3: Yeah, um, and, and, and bringing those elements together in terms of research into food, human health, gut microbiome and the interactions, and increasingly our links with John Innes Centre and TSL and Erlam Institute, so we have uh, group leaders who are joint appointments, so they work across institutes and different, different elements. Okay. So, so it's kind of built in, that kind of, and, that, and that's growing as I think everybody understands that these are huge problems we're trying to crack and you're not going to do it as one institute. You're going to have to work with partners to do that. So down here in the lower ground floor, almost all of that is the endoscopy unit. So that's, I think, Europe's largest. Um, yeah, it's,
1: it's got to be. It's pretty impressive yeah, inside. It,
3: it's a really interesting thought that when you're up, up on yeah. the upper ground floor, but underneath your feet. There are people who've come in to get investigations and bowel cancer screening and all the rest of it. And as Ian said, it's a really, really useful facility and capability for us to have access to in terms of getting gut samples. And there's a biobank just over the road that's managed by the hospital as well. Okay, brilliant. So functionally that's part of the hospital, it's managed by the hospital and it's staffed by them. Um, Ian's the director of the institute as a whole. Um, but obviously, clinical management is managed
1: by the, by the hospital, clinical services. Yeah.
3: yeah, and it is a reminder for all of us every day.
1: Yeah, about why still, we're why doing we're what we do. When Ian was having his interview at the corner of my I could see patients coming in. Yeah, and that's the first thing I, you, you, you see, you see it continually, and it's a constant reminder. It is,
3: it? and Ian alluded to. It, but I spent ten years as head of comms at the hospital. Yeah. Um, five years as head of comms at the university and this is the one place I've ever worked where actually all of those elements are circulating okay, in the same building at the same time and that's really powerful I think and I think um, patients and carers get it as well they yeah. kind of in we need to do a bit more work around engaging them because for two years because of Covid we couldn't the, the building wasn't open yeah you were coming in for specific reasons But we're now in a place where we can do that. Any questions was a good example of bringing the public. And they they loved it. Over there you've got the hospital's R&D department. So Mm -hmm. the hospital's on an evolutionary path from having been one of the country's biggest um, district general hospitals to early 2000s it became a teaching hospital with the formation of the Norwich Medical School at UEA. And it's done a fantastic job of a teaching hospital that trains clinicians and doctors. And the next step of its evolution is to be a teaching hospital that's focused on clinical research as well. Yeah. So their their strategy is to kind of evolve that Um, and and that's one of the cultural challenges that we think we can help them do because we understand how research works Yeah. Um, and they're making that transition from doctors who do service provision to doctors who do service provision and have a clinical research focus as well. So that's part of the mission.
0: I do love annual reports and accounts, which is a weird thing to say, but you always... That's possibly
2: perverse. I know, it's it's, it's very bad. I'm
0: trying to keep them up. But one thing you do get is a very good insight, particularly through strategic reports, uh, into into an organization, what their goals are, aims for the future. One of the things that stood out to me in in, in the one I I, I read on the quadrum uh, was how you're looking at... The food that's big, that plant-based food that may be better for the planet, but there is still a question mark, uh, perhaps, I mean, maybe unfair, but there's still a question over, is that food good for us? And I'm thinking particularly in terms of deficiencies in uh, vitamin B12, which I know something is, that's been looked at. Um, by the institute i mean and andrew here mentioned to something about daffodils, i believe um it, it, was, it was a cutesy experiment A cute, well you see but from 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 small acorns as they say what role is the quadrant going to play in, in in ensuring that uh with industry that the food that's better for the planet is better for the humans that are consuming it as well
2: well there's a lot of work to be done uh uh, in this area, because I, we need to define what food, what's in food, anyway, right. whilst we're understanding what are those elements that make food healthy or not healthy. <clears throat> now uh, we know about global warming now, and we know we've left a, a little bit late to start doing stuff about yes. global warming. Perhaps. It's a challenging statement, so I better be I better moderate what I say. It's never too late. Yeah. And so we need to understand what that impact on global warming will be on the way we produce food. Now we produce food um, and it it's quite interesting over the last remember what happened with human beings and evolution. So over the last 10 or 12,000 years, we moved from a hunter-gatherer diet to a diet where we were cultivating crops that were better for us to cultivate, and that led the agrarian revolution. So we settled on a few crops, you know, wheat, corn, rye, barley, some of the, the, the grains, the grasses, and a few animal species, and we settled with those. That's a blink of an eye in terms of evolution, yes. but we've settled on those. Those are what there are. They're not necessarily the best or healthiest for us. They're just the foods that we happen to have had over the last twelve thousand years or so, and our evolution has been part of that over a very short period. However, you know, Homo sapiens of some form or um, of some form or another have been around for a bit longer than that. And so we've been evolved to eat other things. Now, we need to explore what those other things might be because we still have a repertoire of of, uh, other food crops out there. I'm thinking even the things that we're beginning to look more seriously at now, like some of the millets, which don't have uh, such a high glycemic hit, which might be contributing to some of the disease um, states that we're seeing. So there's a whole repertoire of foods we need to look at Uh, in addition to those new foods like new burgers that don't contain any meat or uh, whatever. So there, there are a range of opportunities for us to really understand what's in food and what impact it will have.
0: Well, I've been reach, uh, reached out to by a listener, uh, one listener in particular but uh, to ask about your work on uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and, and ME
2: yeah well this is this is quite interesting i i I would say now that um is a really interesting disease and for a long time um it it's it's been um misunderstood and it might be there's not just one ME, but there might be a of different etiologies that result in the same symptom that's a chronic um Well, the the chronic symptoms associated with disease, but they might have different etiologies, i.e. different causative, uh, and we don't know. So it might be that the role of the gut microbiota plays in ME is significant. We need to do the experiment. So after all, we're scientists. So if you challenge me as a scientist in any situation, I'd say, well, we've got to be empirical. We've got to do the experiment to test the hypothesis. That's absolutely fundamentally important. This is what's beaten into you as a young scientist. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. this. <laughs> we 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 get these um, we get these uh, uh, routes to take to actually test hypotheses, and we need statistically significant numbers. We need to do the test that's well uh, well organised with with all the right controls. And then we need to see what the answer is as a consequence.
0: Do you know, I find it it's weird, but I find it immensely comforting when you say the words "we don't know," because there is so, that means there's so much left to be understood, so much left <clears throat> to discover, rather than what well, we think we we know pretty much everything. So we're, we know.
2: Well, I, I think one of the weaknesses you find in scientists is is our our brutal honesty, (laughs) and that means we always fail, we often fail in discussions with politicians who are black and white and they can say things. Uh, When I reflect uh, on statements I make, as we always do, you think, well, do we actually know that? Do we really understand what's going on? And you have to, scientists tend to be brutally honest with themselves and say, actually, until we do the experiment, until we test it, then actually, we don't know. It remains hypothesis and it remains to be tested. The more evidence we get that supports a hypothesis, great, and the more evidence we get from different routes, different experimental designs, we can move forward with certainty that that hypothesis is remaining testable and it's remaining intact. What you really want to do is find a killer experiment that really challenges that experimental <laughs> situation. So you can reflect on it and say, well, that's not quite what we expected. Um, but until then, you know, you're, you're testing hypothesis, gravity, you know, or theory of evolution. That's a hypothesis. But there's lots and lots of evidence on the way.
0: Yes. Uh, I, having had... I mean, you wouldn't know that no necessarily know this, but having had some decade or more experience working with poli- very closely with politicians, I absolutely understand where you're coming from, um, and and seeing them sort of quiz quiz uh, yep. scientists. It's it's um, it's if you're allowed to finish the sentence, um, that 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 that's quite a, a, a meeting of worlds.
2: Well, I think it's just a, 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 a often you find that politicians and. Uh, have some sort of legal or legalistic or backgrounds so or they may even have trained as barristers. And that's a completely different approach in terms of understanding and deriving truth, yeah. because it might, it might have some different meaning.
0: Yes, well, not always, but often it's, it's uh, to uh, encourage you to give the answer they first thought of. So, um, but, I, I, I would never dream
2: of saying that.
3: Just to kind of orientate ourselves, that's the endoscopy unit through okay. there. So we are sort of on the lower ground floor now. Mm-hmm. But this side of um, the unit is us. So that's microscopy in there. That's Cynthia Wickchurch, one of our group leaders, and Laura Nolan. Um, Cynthia, is her research interest is biofilms, and she came over from Australia.
1: Oh, okay. So she'd
3: worked with Ian previously. Um, she's an FAA, which is the Australian equivalent of our Royal Society Fellow, so she's brought her group here. Yeah, Matt Gilmore, who um, was Canada's sort of National Microbiology Lab Director, he came over in the pandemic. Uh, He runs a group here and he also runs um, a new food safety research network for the UK, which is funded by the Food Standards Agency, BBSRC. So it's interesting to see just how much it's kind of brought new new faces in, new thinking. So that's my crossbeam now Um, and this is one of the amazing things we do here and we developed it with the Norfolk Norwich University Hospital is a treatment for specific groups of patients and the treatment is something called faecal microbiota transplantation and essentially it's a poo transplant um, which sounds quite disgusting but what you're doing is if uh, the analogy I'd use is um, you're reseeding a lawn or or perhaps a wildflower meadow. So people who've had a lot of antibiotics over the years, and that can sort of deplete the microbiome in the gut. And then Clostridium difficile likes that, it takes over, can make you very, very ill. And and what you need to do is reseed that microbiome. So they get um, fecal material from a healthy person, put it into somebody with that kind of disease and they recover. So we, we've done that um, for, for patients on the NHS, it's a NICE approved oh, a treatment. treatment. So it is a thing, it's a real thing.
0: When you say NICE approved treatment, you mean as in the National Institute, Institute of Clinical, Clinical Excellence? Excellence. Yeah. It's NICE and
3: what, what the National Institute for mm-hmm. Clinical Excellence does is, is say, does the, A, does this work? And B, is it value yeah. for money? And the answer is yes, it works, and yes, it's value for money. Um, but because we have to now produce that material in a pharmaceutical standard facility, that's why we're spending this money currently. And it's going to be critically important for our research and for patient care, because we're, we're looking to start the UK's only clinical intervention trial for
1: ME patients. Oh, brilliant. Okay, that's really exciting. So that's a trial called yeah. Restore,
3: Restore ME, um, and that will involve patients with ME either getting placebo or um, FMT. And, and the thinking behind that is that what, underlie, what underlies ME might be uh, leaky gut syndrome as, as a result of post-viral infection. And leaky gut syndrome means the barrier between um, the gut microbiome and the rest of your body isn't working as well as it might do. Um, and we think, Simon Carding, Professor Simon Carding's hypothesis is FMT will help restore that
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and there's a huge pent-up mm-hmm. demand from people with ME to take part. I can imagine it's probably that's interesting every, the Department of yeah. Health published an interim plan last week which we very much welcome because it recognizes that it's been under-researched um, and the ME patients have been let down
1: they've yeah Pretty by much the ignored community, or, yeah, for, a long, for time. a long time. I mean, how are you going to manage recruitment onto those trials? Because I can imagine it would be yeah, popular.
3: It is very popular. What we've got is um, the study. Hi, James. Um, the study has been developed with um, the NHS and one of the NHS's only sort of ME services run by East Coast Community Healthcare. Which is a, which is interesting. A community interest company that operates in Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. Okay. Um, and they deliver an ME service, so they have a pool of patients who live relatively local to us. Because obviously there are issues about those patients may not be able to travel far. Yeah, yeah. So they have a hundred patients who are ready, willing, and able to take part. We just need to get this finished and signed off, and we're ready to roll.
1: That must be a really, you know, really. Welcome. welcome. Yeah, yeah I think there's a
3: lot of interest in it. Groups. A lot of people really desperate for kind of some yeah. solutions. And we hope we can provide some of the answers in due course.
0: You mentioned technology earlier and I know that your colleague here, Dr. Dipali Singh, is part of the AI, has been selected for the management um, team of the AI in Bioscience Network. Yeah. So... And one of the points she makes in the, her blog post quite in, on the QI website is quite interesting in the fact that a lot of AI is used, we just don't call it that yet, or, or we, we've used it for ages, we just haven't called it AI. Um, uh, so how can you see um, the develop the development of those interactions between the, the use of AI growing, I should say, in what you do, and uh, the increased uh, interactions between the mathematics Disciplines, yep. the scientific disciplines, and the clinical disciplines.
2: So this it, this is the next stage of uh, evolution of science, and I, I think we're, we're encountering it probably a little bit behind the physicists who were aware of AI because they were having to manipulate vaster numbers. It's only now where, where we've got vast amounts of information and it's either the genomic information, the genetic information, or it's the uh, image information when we're doing high resolution imaging of, of, of uh, microbial host cell interact, that, that sort of behavior. They require a lot of information, a lot of data processing, and it's 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 where those science of physics, maths, biology all intersect. And I think this is the exciting period now. But I, I think we're at that period of of evolution of science. In general, Imagine, throw your mind back, if you can, from history books of, of Victorian-level science or pre-Victorian, where, where, you know, steam trains or steam engines are just making an impact in the, way that, uh, in the way that industry works, and suddenly everything changes as a consequence. Now the cautionary note there is, of course, that society itself uh, uh, is impacted. So in a, in a rush to embrace the new technology and the industrialisation, there's an impact on society. So we need to be careful now, forewarned by our knowledge and uh, of previous big changes in science and the impact on society. We can be pre-warned and we can take uh, adequate precautions that we don't disrupt society too much as a consequence. But we could be heading into a golden age of understanding how we leverage science as a consequence of these machine learning ai-based approaches but we used to use and throw around the terminology big data
0: Um,
2: but there's every all data can be big there's big data everywhere Uh, there's there's lots and lots of information that these machines and their algorithms will give us insights if we ask the right questions
0: well, I hope we're doing that at 40. the moment. 42. 42, well, quite, yes, indeed. Um.
3: So we're sort of, we're walking away from higher level pathogens down to down lower to low level, level. pathogens. We are very much in the
1: microbe
3: area. Yeah, we are. My wife's doing a PhD at the moment. She's, a, she's an emergency medicine yeah. doctor. And she's, her, Research interest is traumatic brain injury and trauma so trauma oh, okay. and coagulopathy. So what happened? Why why do some people clot and some people don't? Oh go fascinating. Clocked? Okay. But she's based at the Blizzard Institute in London. But she's been round so yeah. your labs are better than our labs. Yeah. Sequencing room So Patrick Valance came in February and formally opened the building. Oh,
1: okay, yeah.
3: Um and one of the things he was in so this is where all the sequencing work for covid was done and you know that from your point of view mike that small silvery gray machine yes. plugged in that it, that sequences that's a minion. so what patrick was struck by was you know in back in the day it would have been a huge, huge room, room was full of sequences, and okay. now it's what looks like a flash drive
0: you know, what I use just yeah. to plug in microphones is is about more comparable to the size of um, the, the, the device behind it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a very swish-looking computer, and if I thought I could get it out of the building, I would probably have it away. Very expensive um, as well. I, I bet. But for, for those those who obviously can't see this, it's about half the size.
2: This little
0: pss- winking yeah. grey silver box that Andrew mentions. It's about half the size of a mouse.
3: Yeah. That's right, it's yes. really quite small. Yeah,
0: yes. And uh,
3: what the, the really exciting development for us and for science generally is that evolution. So, um, further down the corridor, we've got commercial lab space. And then that commercial lab space has a group from Oxford lanaport Oh, okay,
1: yeah.
3: Make makes, yep, makes. these. But what, what they've done is just know Grady, who was a group leader here and led our work on COVID sequencing. Was enticed away by Oxford Nanopore, but he said, I don't want to leave Norwich. And I said, that's fine. So they're based at the Quadrum, and we've licensed some of our IP that the World Health Organization has just endorsed in terms of um, sequencing drug resistant TB.
1: Okay, yeah.
3: That it's effective and that it works. And why is that important? Because drug resistant TB is a growing problem globally. Traditionally, clinicians have to wait for sputum samples to be cultured before they know what they're dealing with. And that can take days or weeks. But with this kind of technology, sequencing technology, that takes five hours. So wow. you're giving clinicians the information they need within hours so they can target the right drugs and therapies.
1: Real-time patient care.
3: Real-time point-of-care mm-hmm. diagnostics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're still at the beginning of this. But who, who have just endorsed that, and that some of that science came from here. So for us, that's incredibly exciting. I bet. And for Oxford Manipur, even more exciting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so they're based down there.
1: Excellent.
0: We liked him so much, we bought
1: in a lab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's certainly uh, academia industry <clears throat> relation. Yeah, they going is. on.
3: Yeah.
0: Horizon. We were hoping the UK... We were, weren't we? And that kind of seems to be sort of on the, you know, the hang on a minute phase um, of of, of negotiation. Um, But on the basis, the optimistic basis, that the UK rejoins at some point in the near future, what will that mean for the Quadrum Institute and the NRP and and the wider scientific um, body in the region?
2: Well, you know, science is a language that transcends um, boundaries. And the same rules apply if you drop a ball from a certain height in France or in Britain. You know, it will still descend at the same rate. And science is a universal language. And I think we, there's a duty almost on us to make sure that we are doing science with our partners in a way that benefits all of us.
0: You can hear an extended version of Tammy's tour on the Eastern Promise podcast feed. So, with the tour over, let's hear what Tammy made of the Quadrum Institute and her impressions of the wider Norwich Research Park. Tommy Dugan we are now set outside the gleaming Quadrum Institute oh. they can't hear us now so what did you make of that then
1: oh it was it was really really fantastic the first thing that struck me as I said when I walked in the first thing you notice are the patients on the ground floor yeah and then you can see up to the side you can see lab space and it's that interaction between patient care and real research that re- that I found really impressive, and then to find out the quadrum was because of the four institutes, actually merged together. It was really impressive. It, it, it's um, it's probably more than I expected it to be in the terms of uh, I didn't quite realise um, the scale of the um, the scale of the institute, firstly, and secondly, just how how large the patient. A reach was with the largest uh, endoscopy suite in Europe so that did take me back yeah. a bit
0: yeah. so I mean in terms of how knowledge of this place can will I, mean, I, I don't expect you to make uh, University of Cambridge policy on the fly but how will knowledge of this place factor into what you do
1: um, it's the I mean it's, it was so close we're just down the a11 yes and this huge um, area of microbiome and food research that and uh, the patient care that is so close to us, but really into what interentwined um, research areas that would be really beneficial for from cambridge to to norwich it's it 's really important to Strengthen the ties between the areas. I I think. Yeah. So
0: so how can Eastern Promise? The slightly self-serving question. How can Eastern Promise help you do that? And how can we work on that as uh, people who care about the science that's done in our region and want to see it succeed on a global level and and do good for humanity broadly?
1: Um, Just to highlight a bit more what's actually done here and what is here. I I didn't realise the extent of the microbiome work that was carried out here. I didn't realise that. As I said before, the endoscopy suite was actually as large as it was. Just the cutting-edge research that's going on here, it's amazing. And uh, I don't feel unless I had actually looked myself and tried to find out what was going on, I would would have found out because it's not a Cambridge Institute from where I am in the sense that it's in our area, but because it's a separate um, it's classed as a separate university and a separate institute it's not something we hear about as much and i think it's a shame because it's a really really fascinating um, institute i'm actually sitting outside it now just still really impressed with uh not just the physical appearance and you know of the institute but what goes on in here
0: well i'm really really thrilled that you're going to take away such a good impression to share what you've you've found what you've seen and it's, it's a real, been a real pleasure to have, to have you with us today. I, I, I love it when other people get I'm their voices I really, out out really, the podcast. really,
1: really enjoyed it.
0: My huge thanks to Professor Ian Charles OBE, to Andrew Stronach, and especially to Dr Tammy Dugan of Cambridge University for coming along with an open mind and for seeing not only the potential of the Quadram Institute and the Norwich Research Park, but also that we still have a job of work to do in improving the links between Cambridge and Norwich, our region's two centres of science, which are complementary, not competitors. Eastern Promise relishes the challenge, and we're here to do exactly that. And now... Post-pandemic, we all like nothing better than to get out there and meet up with our contacts for a caffeine-infused catch-up. But where do you go for sparkling coffee and strong conversation? Or, Or something like that. It's time to get milk on the side and a cinnamon swirl for another... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Let's brew up some answers, led by Adam Peed, business development strategist at Inuti and the brains behind adampeed.com. Says Adam, "Wow, there are so many great spots, but if pushed, number 1 for me, it has to be Dick's Bar in Norwich. I could work from there all day." In Lynn, it's Norbury's, eh, more a weekend spot. I'm looking forward to reading the Cambridge suggestions. As am I, Adam, as am I. Chains are an easy out, but crowd sorcery helps you to take the fear out of the frappe, uh, so to speak, and try somewhere new with confidence. And here to help is Dave Graham, life science, medtech, biotech networker and super connector. Dave tells us, that he's been known to hang out near the Central Railway Station in Cambridge, moving from the library in the Clayton to the Venetian, with lunch at the old ticket office, then repeat in reverse in the afternoon. Oh, and Gail's Bakery. Friend of the show, Tarquin Bennett-Coles, senior partner at SCI Partners, advisor for Guy Me Limited, pro bono mentor for the Homerton changemakers, I was a Homerton last week, loved it and Tarquin supports careers in healthcare for the MBA and EMBA students at the Judge Institute. Tarquin tells us he likes to use the independent coffee houses when he can. The Arts Picturehouse Cafe, in the day, in Cambridge, is pretty quiet. And, says Tarquin, I have used the increasingly busy, but fun, hot numbers on Trumpington Street a few times. The Goggs Farm Shop used to have a great cafe, coffee shop, But COVID changed that, and they have a barn outside if you want a secluded, open-air feel. Lastly, the Copley Business Park has a bright, pristine cafe, free parking, for a discreet meeting for those based near Babraham or the A11. Now, this week's special guest, Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Sciences and Healthcare Partnerships Lead at the University of Cambridge, adds, Tarquin, I was there yesterday! She continues, My regular coffee office is hot numbers, on Trumpington Street. I spend a fair bit of time there. I also frequent Fitzbillies Cafe as a meeting point. I do now grab a giant cinnamon swirl from Gales by the station if I want a close-to-station catch-up. I do like to meet away from the office. Tim Robinson, Chief Operating Officer at Tech East, agrees, says he. Tammy, hot numbers is great. Tim also raves about First Coffee Shop in Woodbridge in Suffolk. Thanks to James Kindred for the mega tip, says Tim. Woodbridge. There's always something in Woodbridge. Chris Sargison, meanwhile, of Sargison Associates, agrees with Adam Peed at the top of the shop with a simple one-word recommendation. Dicks! Dave Graham returns to remind us that dicks is not to be confused with dirty dicks. I sense a conspiracy to force me to say dicks repeatedly on this podcast. In any case, Dave, Dirty Dicks is in London, and so inadmissible. So, so inadmissible. Finally, thankfully, decorum is restored by the wonderful Harriet Fear MBE. Says Harriet, discovered gales a short while ago. Thank you, Becca, at Cambridge Science Centre. And the cafe at the Fitzwilliam is lovely, with antique ceramics around the corner to lust after. What's not to love? Nothing. Nothing harriet nothing is not to love and on that note you stay where you are i'll get this one that was episode 77 of the eastern promise podcast this podcast will be taking a very short break not just because of my streaming cold as we prepare for our event on the decarbonization of heritage which is taking place at jesus college on the 12th of october this event is now entirely sold out which, for the first live major Eastern Promise event, is incredibly humbling. But never fear, you'll be able to hear what went on soon enough. It only remains for me to thank yet again Professor Ian Charles OBE, Andrew Stronach, Dr. Tammy Dugan, and to all my crowd sorcerers for another bumper delivery. Thank you too to Engineer49, who works like a dog. Thankfully, he does it all pro bono. What, 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 what? And lastly, thank you to you for your company. If anything you've heard today strikes a chord, reach out via the Eastern Promise website, easternpromise.org.uk, or by emailing me at mike@easternpromise.site, at or look me up on LinkedIn, Mike Rigby or Eastern Promise. The DMs are always open. I look forward to hearing from you. Until episode 78 is finally with us, bye for now. To listen to more episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and find out more about what we do, please visit easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Prior's Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.